G'day and welcome to the Eloquent in the Room podcast. I'm Rose Cooper. It's late on a Saturday afternoon here in Sydney. There's a dog barking in the yard next door. There's been various noises (laughs) happening today and interruptions. But fuck me, baby, I'm here and I'm queer. Let's do this fucking podcast. Kidding. It's just been one of those days where every time I've gone to record, there's been some sort of noise. The boys were making lunch and chatting and banging pots and pans and knocking on the door, asking questions. <laughs> and now that I'm just doing the intro, everything's ready to go. I'm just doing the intro. There's a fucking dog in the yard next door yapping away. I don't know if you can hear it or not, but I can hear it with my noise cancelling headphones. Anyway... I've actually recorded the intro, I've got the podcast ready to go, so without further ado, let's listen to that version of me and not this annoyed version of me. Okay, let's do this, brand new series, The Madonna Whore Diaries, let's talk about the Madonna Whore Complex or Syndrome or Dichotomy, depending which college you went to, as my mum used to say. Wow, is that a contrast or not? I sound so fucking chill, don't I? Freud coined the term the Madonna Hall Complex initially, theorizing that it inhibited heterosexual men's ability to respect and admire a woman that he simultaneously wanted to fuck, basically. Uh, Freud located the Madonna Hall Complex's roots in men's unresolved sensual feelings towards their mothers, leading to sexual and relationship dysfunctions. Isn't that just like Freud to have all this parent-child stuff going on with so-called sexual dysfunctions? So when you're talking about sex and relationships literally, I suppose there's merit in that, but the Madonna Hall complex has gone on to embody everything that has anything to do with patriarchy and double standards. Um, You could sum it up in a sentence, the good girl, bad girl bullshit that women have to deal with. Women who have a lot of sex and enjoy sex aren't the kind of woman you take home to mother. Um, It's encapsulated by men's desire to marry a virgin or someone who hasn't had a lot of experience. Obviously, there's uh, people that laugh at that idea. Why would you want to have sex with someone who has no experience? (laughs) Seems like a self-defeating thing to do. But that's Puritanism. That's uh, a culture that has been informed by religion and purity culture and all the stuff that was meant to suppress women, keep them at home, keep them beholden to the man of the family and these typical gender roles that we're supposed to fulfill all of that stuff now that's all self-explanatory but it also informs rape culture bad girls not only love sex they would do it with anyone at the drop of a hat they're indiscriminate sluts don't care sluts are low lives sluts are this that and the other thing there's this Uh, vivid imagery that goes along with the word slut or whore or whatever that makes people judge and look down upon people who enjoy sex. The sex positive movement is now founded on the outrageous idea that sex is actually pleasurable and good for you and there's nothing morally wrong with women enjoying it. I know, crazy, right? 
right? I think in order to tackle rape culture, it's really worthwhile to examine the Madonna whore complex. Also, the dynamic that it has in relationships after marriage, um, as the Freud thing implies, a guy will marry a woman and prior to getting married... He's all into the the dirty sex and the fun sex and the kinky sex and whatever. And then after the marriage, he tones it down a bit for some weird reason because he suddenly puts his wife on a pedestal, probably cheats on her with someone who's a bit more kinky, you know, or looks at a lot of porn or, or whatever. There's just a lot of really weird... Then I nearly said weird Freudian shit going on. I guess it's all Freudian shit at the end of the day. The ways in which people deify or preserve the sanctity of women when they become mothers and all that sort of stuff puts so much pressure on women to conform to an idea that is not based in any kind of realistic idea of what it is to be a human being urges are fucking urges so i thought it would be fun to explore it on my own i was going to just delve into some previous articles that i've written on the subject and give you some you know uh, well researched and well thought out stuff and then i thought Meh, let's talk to some different women about it and no sooner did that idea drop into my head literally within a week three different women bubbled to the surface in my dms asking to have conversations with me about various things to do with sex and sexuality. And I realized immediately that the three women, while completely different, and the three topics, while quite different, the connecting thread with all three conversations that I wanted to have were all very much steeped in Madonna Hall complex themes. So I went inwardly berserk i was so excited when i realized this um i made a reel and threw it onto instagram heralding the fact that madonna hall complex is where my head's going to be at for the next few weeks and rather than you know give you all the facts and lecture and all that sort of stuff like i did with 2020 and orgasmic oddity which was really heavily researched and um, quite painstakingly written i thought i'd allow myself the luxury of just having conversations not really interviews because the women that I'm talking to don't necessarily consider themselves to be in any way experts on the topic of the Madonna Hall complex they're just people with different interests (laughs) but the concept of the Madonna Hall complex is equally intriguing to them so they know where I'm coming from in regards to let's open up and have real conversations about who we are deep down inside when we shed our internalized misogyny and whore phobia and respectability politics and stuff. When we strip that away and look at our individual sexuality at its core level, at its um, most primal level, who are we when we're just talking about sex as a recreational pastime as as fun for its own sake what um taboos and in what way are we trying to be dainty when we're talking about certain topics in what way are we avoiding the taboo of the desires that we have when we allow ourselves to strip away these artifices of 
being a woman, i.e. being a girlfriend and um, wife and mother and all of these things. What do we believe about ourselves and other women? Let's really just talk about it. So this isn't really a bunch of interviews. It's a bunch of conversations I'm going to lay on you. And it doesn't seem like there's a big difference there, but I feel that there is because I'm participating in the conversation quite heavily, particularly with the conversation that I'm having with my first guest, Megan. When she popped into my DMs to give me some feedback about a reel that I'd posted about sex education, she immediately confessed that she had struggled with the performative aspect of sex versus being in her own skin and being mindful and stuff. And she's just coming into that feeling of enjoying sex a certain way at this stage in her life. She's in her early 30s. And then she also told me that she is a sex worker. And I thought to myself, let's just stick a pin in this DM and get onto the podcast and have a conversation about it there. It's not really meant to be an interview about what it's like to be a sex worker. It's actually just a conversation between two women who have had a lot of sex (laughs) during the course of our lives and both seen ourselves in certain roles and evolved and grew to see ourselves in different ways and both have to assimilate all of the journey of who we are and the way that we have viewed ourselves and assimilate those parts of our existence into the person we are moving forward. Now this journey we take through life assimilating the person that we have been and the person that we used to be with the person that we are and the person that we will be always makes me think about the Tao of Pooh written by Benjamin Hoff, which is a fantastic book. I highly recommend reading it. It is basic Taoism or Taoism as told through the characters of Winnie the Pooh. And there's a quote that I love. Tickle, 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 tickle quote music. There are things about ourselves that we need to get rid of. There are things about ourselves we need to change. But at the same time, we do not need to be too desperate, too ruthless, too combative. Along the way to usefulness and happiness, many of those things will change themselves. And the others can be worked on as we go. The first thing we need to do is recognize and trust our own inner nature and not lose sight of it. It's cool, isn't it? I fucking love that quote. That's just my way of introducing this conversation that I have with a beautiful person by the name of Megan. I've divided it into two episodes. This first episode, we explore her journey as a sex worker and how she got into the game, how she made it work for her, how it sometimes worked against her, and how it brought her to where she is today and where she might go with it in the future. And the second part of our conversation, the next episode after this one, is a longer excerpt. And we expand the 
conversation to talk about sex, to talk about our sexuality and our sexual discovery just as women kind of generally. It's possibly one of the most candid conversations I've had on the podcast to date. So gird your loins and be aware of your own inner Madonna whore complex that might be tweaked by a conversation between myself, a woman of almost 60, mother of three, and a sex worker. Leave your judgments at the door and just listen to two lovely women having a nice little chat. I'll be back afterwards for a bit of a debrief. There's obviously going to be curiosity there. I think everybody who has never done sex work or never um, employed a sex worker or engaged a sex worker isn't really aware of the the absolute spectrum of of services and reasons for going into it and and how good about yourself you feel or how bad about yourself you feel everything's everything's on you know coming into it for one reason and then finding a different reason for staying in or finding a reason to go all of these things you know it's really interesting I find it's also really glamorized a lot lately, mm. which is strange to me because, like you said, there there's a lot of different reasons to do it. When I first started out, it was more of a, a survival thing. I mean, obviously, I'm privileged. Like, I'm cis femme presenting, white. So, for me, like, I could have gotten a different job, you know, mm. but not... At 19, not earning that amount of money, I wouldn't have been able to be financially independent. Um, Mm. Also have had a lot of problems with drugs and alcohol, um, and that eats up a lot of money. It does. Um, (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, so I got into it to support myself, to survive, to be able to afford to eat and live and then support my bad habits um so what age did you start the first time I turned a trick actually I was 18 Mm -hmm. Um, maybe I was 19 by then and I was not working at a strip club my first experience working at a strip club actually was right when I turned 18 and um it was there was this girl I was in massage therapy school with who had this idea for this hustle where she like she goes to a strip club with a friend and they talk a guy into going to a hotel with them to do full service they take the cash and then the other girl comes and bangs on the door plays the jealous girlfriend and they take the money and bounce oh wow wanting to do something like that I didn't really want to do that but I had always been curious about stripping like I Mm. kind of had sort of like a fetish for stripping and prostitution when I was younger. I mean, I still kind of do. So I went with her and we went for like a day shift um, at a club in Dallas, Texas. And we pull up to the club and she pulls out this like meth is huge in Texas. So she pulls out like a line of meth and like snorts it before we go in. And she's like, you want some? And I'm like, Oh God, no. Like I definitely dabbled with meth when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. That made me nervous. And then we get into the club, get hired, like get dressed. 
I don't know what I'm doing at all. I had never been to a strip club. So I'm doing that like on stage. I'm like doing that, like drop it low, bring it back up just over and over again. Like people are laughing at me. Like it was, uh, it was, uh, very humiliating. We only stuck around for a little while. Um, she said it was whack and wanted to leave. And I was like, okay. The next day I couldn't walk because I was doing that, like <laughs> drop it low, bring it back up thing. And I didn't strip again for a year. But in between that time, I had a massage client that would come in and I worked at this like chain of massage places um, called Massage NB. That's basically like the Starbucks, McDonald's and massage. They oh, okay. don't. Yeah. They don't pay the therapist anything, but they would let me no call, no show, and then just come back to work like nothing happened. So I mm-hmm. stayed there for a while and um, had this client that would come in who was an older gentleman. And he was, he would always tip me like minimum $40 on top of the massage. And he would bring me gifts like tarot cards and like diamond jewelry and all of this. And, and then one night I was getting ready to go out to a rave club with my girlfriend at the time. Mm-hmm. And he kind of contacted me and said, uh, like, what are you doing tonight? And I said, Oh, like I'm going to a club. I'm busy. And he's like, well, are you $500 busy? And I was like, no, I guess not. <laughs> I went to hang out with him. We went to an adult store and he bought me all this lingerie and like toys and everything. And, um, he was on crack. So mm-hmm. we ended up doing crack together oh, wow. all yeah. night and, um, didn't really like have sex, just like played with the toys and watched porn and did crack. And I put on the lingerie and all that stuff. Um, and he gave me the money and he also gave me some pills. He gave me some like, um, clonopins, a benzo and some Vicodins. And, um, at the time, like I was very anti prostitution. Mm. Like, um, I thought it was a bad thing and I mm. was ashamed about it and I didn't like tell anyone. I, nothing like that. Um, And then soon after I started working full-time at a strip club in Dallas, Texas called the clubhouse. Um, Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with Pantera band? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it was owned by Dimebag Daryl and Benny Paul, the twins from Pantera. Um, Mm -hmm. And Dimebag Daryl had already passed away when I started working there, but Benny Paul was in there all the time with his band. Hell yeah. Um, And it was a really fun place. Like I still recommend if anyone's going to Dallas to go check out that strip club because yeah. it's like alternative, like rocker strip club. It's BYOB and, um, it's really cheap. Mm. Like it was my first club and dances were like $20. Like I would do 20 and then 30 full nude. Um, and as I got older, of course, like I wanted to start, charging more but to me then when I first started like on weekday nights I would leave with like 150 200 dollars and on weekends I would make 300 to 500 dollars and I was like this is incredible Mm -hmm. like this is like Mm -hmm. 
it was I was getting paid to party basically mm-hmm. yeah I loved it I always like have been kind of an exhibitionist like the attention and I met someone there who was a lawyer he offered me a thousand dollars to sleep with him outside the club I think I did that with him a couple of times and then word got around the club and um I ended up getting fired from there for um, being drunk. I'm not a good drunk. Yeah. <laughs> at all. Cannot moderate, always trying to fight men. <laughs> like, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so was this in the first couple of years that you were stripping? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, then I kind of bounced around clubs in Dallas and I would like find occasionally in the club like people that I would sleep with for money and I was um uh, I kind of want to say I had like a cognitive dissonance about it but I don't know if I'm like really using that term correctly Mm. like I still really had this like internalized phobia. like I looked down on um people that were sleeping with people for money. Um, Would you regard it more like a sugar daddy kind of setup where people just want to spend time with you or you saw it as a transaction still? Not. It still was a transaction, but I was like dishonest about it. And I remember like, uh, I had a boyfriend at the time I was living with and he and I were, we would date other girls together and there was this one girl in particular that I'm still friends with actually. Um, but I remember at the time when we were dating her, she was doing full service work and mm. I really looked down on her for it. Um, wow. That's yeah. co- that is cognitive dissonance, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, like I, I just judged the hell out of her for it. Mm. And, um, like I feel so bad about that and then also you know I was young insecure so I would feel jealous because this girl is fucking gorgeous like knockout 10 you know I would get like insecure and I would you know project that onto her as jealousy and um yeah, I just feel so bad about that, about like letting that get in the way of what could have been mm. a really beautiful friendship and relationship, mm. you know? Mm. Um, and I think my like looking down on her for um, having transactional sex was also jealousy fueled um, because she is so gorgeous. She was always able to charge a lot. Um, she was a businesswoman and she didn't have that, those substance use issues that I yeah. did. So she. So was, her making a, a conscious choice mm-hmm. and you felt like you were doing the same thing. You feel like you had a choice. Yeah. So you felt like you had the moral high ground in that. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Interest, interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It is. And I know now, of course, that my thinking was very flawed. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and um, well, you're very young. You're very young at the time, and all we all we had to go by was stereotypes. Yeah, and there was call girl at one end, which is the glamorous. You know, the you know people pay to kiss their feet. 
know, $1,000 per toe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, then, and then you've got street corner girl who who is literally paying for her drug habit. Right. And both, both choices are to make money, whether it's waitressing in a good restaurant or a waitressing at McDonald's, but it's still, you know, you're still giving someone something that they are prepared to pay money for. Yeah. When you and when you look at it at its most, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Healthy. It's a bad word. I'm not. I'm not in love with the word healthy. But you, you've been a massage therapist. Mm-hmm. You know. You know that people want to have not only their muscles uh, needed and the knots, but we also want to have someone's hands on our skin. Yeah. And it's very calming and relaxing and and stuff. And if you're not having any physical contact you're not having sex and you feel in need for whatever reason and you don't want to have any complications but you still want to have some kind of connection with someone it's such a valid reason for what either performing the service or taking part but and even though these words are coming out of my mouth I know that I still carry issues and internalized misogyny and envy and insecurity and um stuff yeah it's interesting that you know you think about every movie that you see particularly action movie and stuff there's always the obligatory scene shot in a strip club where two guys have to meet and have a conversation and there's pole dancers in the background or or whatever so you always I guess form an opinion that in America particularly that strip clubs, really glamorous, high flash dance kind of entertainment burlesque and stuff is just everywhere and it's all very like high, high class. <laughs> yeah. I feel like strip clubs are very rarely accurately represented in movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, the movie Hustlers actually did a pretty good job representing what strip clubs are actually like. Yeah. Um, and then in some ways they did, didn't do a great job. Like I remember this one scene where like Constance Wu is in a VIP room with a customer and she is on the floor and I'm like, no, like no stripper. We're like, we know what happens in these places. Like, we're not going to put our naked bodies on the floor in this place. So, like, but there's also a scene in that movie where, um, like, it was before the uh, 90s, like, market crash or whatever that was. That was all before my time. But mm. people say those were the good old days of stripping. And there was like a scene where all the dancers were on stage, like money being thrown on them. And it really captured like the feeling, like the vibe of like being naked on stage, people throwing money on you. Like just how amazing that feels. Mm -hmm. I still remember the first time, like somebody made it rain on me and stayed on stage and how it was like, Wow! Like it's oh, okay. New yeah. yeah. How did how did you uh, rationalize and and approach um, the different phases of your your work life? Um, so when I got to Seattle, um, 
a lot, the club that I was working at was um, right downtown across from Pike Place Market. And there's a lot of people that are business and a lot of wealthy businessmen um, there. And they're like the types that they spend their whole lives focusing on work and they really just don't have time to pursue romantic relationships. Yeah. Um, either that or they're they're married and they're not getting what they want out of their marriage. They probably have a Madonna war complex. Like, <laughs> um, but then I sort of, at that point, like I, I only stayed working there for three months and I was still like, um, having transactional sex. And then I started, um, traveling around working in different clubs and um I linked up with this hippie dude I was hitchhiking with and um then it was still very much like uh I started to be more proud of having transactional sex like I started viewing it as valid because I started making friends with um other people that were doing it and that were um really smart with the money that they were making from it um, instead of just blowing it all on drugs I was still very much an alcoholic at that point mm. and when I was traveling hitchhiking I um, was still like I needed the money so I was not as choosy um, mm. but eventually after about five years of that I went back to Seattle and started working there and um, got set up and established like that's when I got married so I didn't have to rely on the money for survival and I was able to be choosy with my clients um and only um like I had a couple of people that I uh more or less dated transactionally um that I genuinely liked and was attracted to um and I was making more and more friends that were doing that, that type of work. And, um, I just started, finally started to view it as being valid work, which mm. absolutely it is. Mm. Um, but then also around that time, I started meeting girls in the club that were, that had abusive pimps and mm. situations like that. Um, and I don't know, I have a lot of preconceived ideas about pimps. Um, have you always been an independent yes. operator? <laughs> For want of a better word. Yeah. They call us uh, renegades and the people that work with pimps look down on that very much. Um, and it took me a while to come to this conclusion, but I don't think that pimping is inherently bad, but I think there is massive potential for it to become an abusive um, power imbalance situation. Mm. Um, however, there are pimps that work as business managers. Like they, um, hook you up with clients, a place to work. Um, they make sure that you are driving, that you're going to school, that you have all your needs met. And mm -hmm. um, I think that that is a good thing. Just um, it's not something I've ever personally been comfortable with 
myself. Mm-hmm. Um, although I've definitely had boyfriends be sort of like, I, I totally love like playing the sugar daddy role myself. Um, yeah, I, I guess it took me meeting more, like I've, I've made a lot of lasting friendships with really amazing, intelligent women working in the strip club. And mm-hmm. uh, it took me like meeting more people that were having transactional sex to like start really thinking of it as valid. And then when I fell in with that activist group, um, there are other, um, like, uh, I just started doing more research and becoming more aware of the spectrum of people doing sex work. So when, when that, when that sort of psychological shift happened for you, did it change the way you worked? Like the, you, the way you treated your clients or expected your clients to treat you? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I was um, definitely more more choosy, more demanding of, like, respect. My boundaries became very clear and consistent, which mm. when I first started, they were not at all. Mm. And, like, that's the first piece of advice I will give to anyone that is starting out in any form of sex work is to be firm and consistent with your boundaries because Mm. it's so important, but it's also difficult to do when there's a scarcity of clientele and you need the money. Mm. Like I also started learning about the more marginalized people doing sex work. Like, um, trans people that face discrimination and employment, um, people with really bad drug habits, you know, that can't manage to do anything else. Um, mm. which I definitely view drug addiction as being like a systemic issue. And I know, um, people always want to blame the victim, like mm. blame the addict, but I don't look at it that way at all. Um, yeah. I'm not religious, but the saying there, but for the grace of God to go, I is good to keep in your back pocket whenever you want to look, look down on someone. You don't know, you don't know who they are, what they've been through, what their life's like and, and what their relationship is with what they're doing at any given moment or who they are at any given moment. We don't, you just don't know. Mm. I don't know. Like I, I just started to realize that I was very privileged in my experience with sex work. And there's a lot of people that have, don't have choice at all from the get go. Mm. Um, And there's also a group in Seattle called the green light project that does like community outreach. Mm -hmm. So they like go, to the places where the most marginalized people doing sex work are and they hand out like um, just basic things that you would need like hand sanitizer, condoms, um, shampoo, baby wipes, things like that. Um, They're, yeah, they're a really great group. Mm. So when did you start getting involved with activism? I guess once I started meeting 
girls with abusive pimps in the club. I, like, it scared me. I wanted to, like, offer them resources, so I started doing some research, and back then in Seattle, the only things really available were, like, run by the cops. So what did that abuse look like? Was it um, actual violent abuse or psychological abuse or all of the above? All of the above, um, definitely um, financial abuse Mm. and um, using drugs to keep these girls, like, locked in um, to position and, like... It frightened me and made me sad, so I started, like, researching um, resources, and there really was, like, nothing. So then when a group of dancers started, like, meeting and um, talking about, like, the labor rights for, for girls in the club... We, our group sort of overlapped with like the Green Light Project and oh, the uh, SWAP, the Sex Workers Outreach Project is like pretty sure it's international. Um, the Red Umbrella, you know. Um, and then I started learning about like actual resources that are not just like run by the police because I'm not going to refer anyone doing any type of illegal work to live to to the police. Um, yeah. So you were mentioning before that you got married at 26. Um, so you were working up until that point and got married. Mm-hmm. And did you stop at any stage and then resume or you just kept kept working? For a little while, I tried to be good. Um, I kept working at the strip club, for sure. Um, but then... Because he was a bouncer. You, like, that's how you met, so it's not like... Yeah. <laughs> it's not like you're doing it on the sly. Um, and I, I stopped doing full service for a little while, but then... Um, I can't really remember how long it was, but, um, you know, we, when we got together, we were doing lots of like Oxycontin and drinking a lot and had a really toxic, tumultuous relationship where Mm -hmm. we would like fight a lot. And then he would, uh, like disappear for three days as a response, like give me the silent treatment. And, um, the way that I have always handled that in relationships is to go cheat. Like, mm-hmm. just be like, now I have a secret. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I definitely started having transactional sex again during the marriage. And it was always like, I would just get offers a lot at work, you know? And, um, it was difficult to turn down sometimes, especially if it was someone like attractive that I would sleep with anyways. And then I could just tell myself like, it doesn't really count as cheating. Um, we also had like a situation we had like a, I guess one penis policy type of rule where like I was free to date women, which I did, but with other men, it was not, um, not cool but I like 
did um, a couple um, a couple of times like I would cheat for for free you know just because I wanted to and then mostly it was transactional um, usually you know it wasn't just because I wanted to it was because we were fighting and it was like my way of feeling like I still had power which you know is not doesn't really make sense but <laughs> to me it's something I've done since like I was with my first serious boyfriend when I was maybe 16 mm. um so I don't know that's just I'm I'm in like the first healthy relationship I've been in in my life um mm. for it's been almost a year and mm-hmm. um they are wonderful. We are polyamorous, but because that is allowed, it's almost like I don't really have as much desire to act on it, I guess. Maybe I have that oppositional. I, I totally, well, I totally understand because um, I had an open relationship and when that, when that happened, it gave us license to talk more openly about our attraction to other people. If you feel trusted and loved and the concept of someone saying that they love you enough to actually enjoy the idea of you being with someone to the point of that compersion. For people playing at home, the word compersion refers to the feeling of joy one gets when their partner enjoys an emotional and or sexual connection with another person. It's basically the opposite of jealousy. Really getting excited that you have had a lovely time and think, that's great, good for you. And if that's the basis of the relationship and it's fully understood it's it's a really really beautiful thing where it gets slightly messed up I guess is when uh, and it happens in a lot of uh, situations where one person wants to be poly or feels like they want to be poly and encourages the other person or influences or coerces the other person to be poly and actually wants that person to go out and have experiences and the person who is kind of reluctant about it has the experiences and sees how happy that their partner is that they're having these experiences and feels profound rejection. Mm -hmm. You don't even care. (laughs) You don't even care that this is like, it's, there's such a knife's edge with those two states of mind um and it entirely depends on how actual how actually healthy your your relationship is so and it's not about everybody's having hot sex all the time it's just like you have honesty 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 oh that's so hot i love it i'm so hard the honesty is very difficult for me because my entire sexual history has been like uh I felt the need to live a double life like I had my uh my sex work persona Allison and then the real me Megan like uh sort of compartmentalized two different how uh, how much of Allison and is is you and how much was uh 
not you. I know we integrate parts of ourselves that may have been felt inauthentic, but if yeah. you're but if you're doing it for a period of time, it's always going to be part of you, whatever it is. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, it definitely is a part of me. I I want to like since I am retired or at least thinking of moving on to a new chapter of sex work and doing it online, I want to put Allison to rest because it was always a um like a, a fantastical what's what's the word I'm looking for? Like it was a a version of myself. Surreal? Right. Like yeah. a character that was over the top. Um, but now I'm, I'm trying to integrate those two aspects of my personality because especially when I was married, I felt like I, um, you know, my ex-husband, like he, he wanted me to be this person. Like he very much put me on a pedestal and, I was trying to be that person, but I was having an identity crisis the whole time. Like, mm. and then Allison was like my outlet, um, which was just a really exaggerated version of my sexual self. Mm. And so now I'm just trying to integrate those two parts of me because I still like very much, I'm a double cancer, so I'm very into like nurturing and taking care of people um and i enjoy that but, but you have a hard shell very self, <laughs> self-protective <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah um so this really does speak directly to the madonna whore complex because it's not just something that's external and the way men view women but also that internalized it's internalized misogyny but it's not internalized patriarchy or internalized freudism or but i do relate um that self-awareness that is about assimilating or understanding and embracing the sexual part of being a woman while being completely and utterly embodying of Mm-hmm. The, the healing that we've had to do through our lives to find a seat at the table that had nothing at all to do with mm-hmm. who we are as sex goddesses, you know, like to be all of that. We're absolutely allowed to be multifaceted yeah. and still be whole. And that Madonna Whore Complex thing, I mean, so my husband had that and that when I realized he said to me because we stopped having sex really and I would try and try and get rejected and eventually I just stopped trying yeah Um, that was another reason that I sought it out elsewhere a lot um but he said to me you know you're my wife now and I just don't view you like that anymore and I wow he actually put that into words because we know that that's the basis of it but for him to actually put that into words so how did that feel oh that was when I was like it it's over like Mm. this like fuck that misogynistic bullshit Mm. like yes you can love and respect me but still treat me like a whore like Mm. that 
is what I want. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's usually something that happens in a marriage after a woman has a baby. Mm-hmm. They then put the woman up on a pedestal of being a mother mm-hmm. and something psychologically goes on with them because of uh, birth and breastfeeding and all this sort of stuff. The old saying that watching your wife give birth is like watching your favourite pub burn down. It's a very Australian, very very Australian misogynistic joke. And people's the thing is, people still laugh at it though. People just, whether it's uh, shock value or whatever, people still laugh at it. But there's this basic idea that the transition from bride uh, and and girlfriend and and whatever to wife and mother. Is completely and utterly taking everything away from that woman that made you attracted to her in the first place. I mean, to me, sex is very much like an act of creation, like creating that connection and intimacy and closeness. And mm. without that, I no longer feel close and I start to withdraw. Definitely what happened there so when we were talking online you're sort of saying that your awareness of things that you hadn't really allowed yourself to think about or enjoy while doing sex work was that always the case or did you ever encounter people that you were with while you were doing sex work that managed to uh, either managed to get under your guard and connect you with your sensual erotic self? So I had a few, um, let's see. I was, I've always been like orgasmic, like solo, you know, but with other people, I really was not that often. There were, there were two situations one would either be with like a long-term partner that I was comfortable with or two would be like with a person that I knew I was never going to see again. So I could just let it go. Um, but I think I learned from a really young age that being sexual was a way to make people like me. Mm. Um, so it was always kind of, um, a performative thing. So I was too wrapped up in the performance aspect um, to focus on my own pleasure or to think about like if I was having sex with somebody because it was something I wanted or if I had other um, motives. And that was something I kind of realized was holding me back like quite some time ago, but it has only recently like that realization and the like thinking it through working on it um it's only recently started to change me and benefit me Um, Mm. and also I used to fake orgasms all the time well, you're probably thinking that's quite an interesting place to cut the conversation in half, but there is a method in my madness 
I do want you to tune in for the second part of the conversation. So I've left it on a bit of an intriguing note, but it also is pretty much where the conversation evolved from being about Megan's life as a sex worker and just Megan generally talking about her life exploring her sexuality and we just have a conversation about how our relationships and friendships and our personal discoveries opened us up sexually. So that second part of this conversation is going to drop on Tuesday. Then we continue the Madonna Whore journey with two conversations that I haven't actually had yet. All I can tell you is the first of the two will be us having a conversation about sexuality and motherhood and breastfeeding and pregnancy. So it really is the nuts and bolts of the Madonna Whore vibe, if you will. And the conversation that takes place after that is with a self-professed cougar who sings the virtues of the cougar lifestyle from the treetops. And I am not a cougar anymore, but people used to refer to me as a cougar back in the day. And when I say back in the day, a few years ago, when I was still having a fair bit of casual sex and most of the people I was having casual sex with happened to be younger than me in some cases, by quite a long way. So if you're going to go all pop culture about it, technically, I suppose I was a cougar, but I kind of detest the term. My friend, the cougar, loves the term. So this is going to be a really fun conversation. I'm looking forward to it, as am I looking forward to talking to my other surprise friend guest, I've already revealed it on Instagram, um, Phoebe Doran, who I talked to about her life growing up in a cult a couple of podcasts back. Um, she was really keen for us to get together and talk again about breastfeeding and sexuality and all that sort of stuff. So that's going to be a massively button-pushy taboo kind of conversation. So yeah, I'm bringing it. I'm bringing the brave and squirmy conversations for, for the month of August and possibly partly into September. It's the Madonna Whore Diaries, baby. Now, you may remember last episode, I coyly told you about the fact that I now have a Patreon. Well, I made an ad today. I'm not convinced it's a good ad, but it is an ad. So I'm going to leave you with that ad. You can let me know if you think it's a good ad. (laughs) And you can join the Patreon if you are of a mind to. I love you all so much. Thank you for listening. And I'll talk to you soon. Actually, you're going to hear from me very soon. Hi, this is Rose. If you're enjoying the podcast and my social media output and would like to buy me a cup of coffee or a cupcake once or once a month for a while, 
you can sign up to my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the eloquent in the room. Patrons get free music and other behind the scenes exclusive content, but best of all, they get an inner glow knowing that they're helping me, an otherwise totally unemployed creative person, to stay motivated to work hard producing freely accessible consciousness raising, entertaining and educational content. Even if there was a lot of work around at the moment, at my age I would struggle to get a normal job and normal jobs do give me anxiety, whereas this job that I am currently committed to and not being paid for at the moment would give me anxiety if I wasn't doing it. But your support would mean the world. Another way you can be supportive is to like, subscribe, share, follow, rate, review, and just talk about the eloquent in the room. Thanks. Hmm, I'm not sure about it. What do you think? <laughs>